if you're following along in a Bible tonight, I'd encourage you just to maybe keep uh, your finger or something in your Bible um, at 1 Kings 17 and flick over um, to Luke chapter 4, um, where we're going to read a few uh, verses. Luke chapter 4 and beginning at verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do hear in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet, Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. As many of you know, um, before I went into ministry, I was a research scientist and I worked for a number of years in materials chemistry. Now my boss was a man who was incredibly busy. He wore a lot of different hats. He was head of the department, he was director of research, he did lots of different things, and he was really busy all the time. I don't know how many hours in the week he worked, but it was a lot. It was probably illegal, but he loved it. But in the midst of all his busyness, with all the hats he had to wear, he used to say something to me quite often, and it stuck with me. He always used to say, John, the story of my life is the urgent over the important. I always end up doing the urgent over the important. And what he meant was this. The things that were most important to him in his work were his research and his teaching. They were really important to him. He loved them. But there was a lot else going on for him paperwork which had to be completed by a deadline, uh, documents which had to be read before he went to a meeting, um, which he didn't particularly care about, but he had to go and chair the meeting, so he had to read them, marking that had to be done by a particular time, journal articles that he had to peer review before a deadline. And in the midst of a very busy job, which he enjoyed immensely, there was a deep frustration that he had to do all of these things that were urgent, that needed done, that had deadlines, but there were things that didn't really count for much in the grander scheme of things, instead of the things that were important, which had to wait. 
And I'm sure all of us can, can at some level relate to this, the urgent over the important. We want to spend time with people to invest in relationships that are important to us. But that uni assignment, that work meeting, that report that needs to be done, that phone call that comes unexpectedly, the washing machine that breaks down, whatever it is, in all of our lives there are times when the urgent pushes out what's important. And it's actually quite dangerous. It's something that erodes friendships. You don't see that person for ages and you sort of drift apart. The friendship drifts and suddenly you don't know that person that well anymore. It can destroy marriages. When one person is so caught up in their work and it seems like what's urgent, it just can't wait so it has to be done now, it has to be done in the evenings or the weekends when they're meant to be spending time with their spouse and their family. The urgent pushes out what is infinitely more important. But so often we're blinded by it. But let's be honest about it. It's not always urgent things that push out the important. It's the comfortable things which push out the important too. It's much easier and much more comfortable to flick the TV on and find that series we're watching on Netflix and watch the next two or three or 10 episodes. To read that book, to put the headphones on and de-stress, it's so much easier, so much more appealing to do some of those things at times than the hard graft of investing in our relationships, of doing those important things. And none more so than our walk with the Lord. The Bible sits on our shelf or wherever it sits and it doesn't seem very urgent. It doesn't jump up and scream at us, you haven't read me today. It gets squeezed out by other things which are less important but which seem more urgent or maybe which are just more appealing, more comfortable because sometimes reading the word can be hard work and we've just had a long day at work or wherever we are and so we go for the thing that's right in front of us that's easy access rather than what's important. If you're anything like me, that all sounds very familiar. But why are we talking about this tonight as we come to 1 Kings 17? Well, I think the reason is that there's something very important in 1 Kings 17 that would be very easy for us to miss. The stuff that seems more urgent, the stuff that's up in our face, the, the more exciting stuff that would be easier for me to preach on, frankly, well, that stuff's obvious. There's a drought announced by Elijah, that there's these miracles that keep happening. Elijah is fed and watered in the desert, then, then he goes to this widow and her jar of flour, which is a great phrase for an Ulster man, and the oil in her jug never seems to run out. So, she, so she's fed and he's fed. Then her son gets sick and, and dies, and God uses Elijah to raise him from the dead. That stuff's up in our face in this chapter. But there's something else going on in the background that underpins it all. And if we rushed into the exciting stuff, we would miss it. And that would be a travesty because it's important. And the thing that underpins this story is that the word of the Lord provides. The word of the Lord provides. And, and there's plenty going on in this story. But the theme that holds it all together is the word of the Lord and the fact that it provides. And the first thing that we see in the light of that is that if we reject the word of God, it's a disaster. As we join the story at the start of chapter 17, what's going on? Well, it's not pretty, to be honest. We join the story tonight in the midst of a whole-scale rejection of the word of God by many, many people in Israel. There's been a long line of kings in Israel and Judah. We, we heard, heard about some of them in that video, and they've turned away from the word of the Lord. From 1 Kings 11, which is where um, Solomon's reign ends, and we see the slowly but surely there's, they, they turn further and further away from the word of the Lord. 
So in 1 Kings 11, yes, it starts with Solomon. Things had been going well. He built the temple, but at the end of his life, he turns aside. He starts worshiping other gods. His son after him, Rehoboam's no better, and that's when the kingdom splits. And there are several more kings through chapters 12 to 16, and it's a downward slide. It's a mess. It's more and more godless. It's further and further from the word of the Lord. And then we get to the current king, King Ahab. And this is what the author of Kings says about Ahab. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. The previous kings, well, they had strayed a fair bit, hadn't they? There was still worship of the Lord in the temple that Solomon built, but they dabbled with these other false gods. The other nations around them, well, they had gods who supposedly gave prosperity and wealth and health and sure, what wasn't the like about that? So we'll serve the Lord, we'll serve God, but we'll serve these other gods too, just to cover all bases, you know? That was bad enough, but it was a slippery slope. And by the time we get to Ahab, Ahab, he all outputs Baal before Yahweh, the God of Israel. He even builds him a temple in the way that his forefather Solomon built God a temple. Baal was supposedly the, the God of rain and fertility. Ahab's forefathers had wandered away from the word of the Lord but Ahab abandons the word of the Lord altogether. He's in complete opposition to the word of the Lord and what it instructs. So what reaction does this provoke from God? He sends his prophet Elijah. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. There's no background information to Elijah. This is the first time he's mentioned. He just bursts onto the scene. He's a prophet from God. He speaks the words of God. And these words say, you want to worship the God of the rain? Well, I'll show you who the God of the rain is. I'm the weatherman. There's going to be a drought. Rejecting the word of God is a disaster. Now, all of this might seem very far away from us, I suppose. It's an ancient civilization worshiping an idol that's supposedly the god of the rain and of fertility. And I suspect there aren't too many people doing that in East Belfast tonight. But there are plenty of people who reject the word of God. They, they reject the Bible and what it says. It, it, it would be easy for us to say that tonight, wouldn't it? It would be easy for us to point at the world around us and laws that are passed and the way people live and all the rest of it to see that people have rejected the word of the Lord. But actually, that's not the point. That's not the point at all. Because Elijah isn't speaking to those nations outside Israel, those ones who don't know the word of the Lord. He's speaking to the king of Israel. In other words, he's speaking to God's people. So what God's word is saying to us tonight is actually quite uncomfortable. And it should act as a warning to us. We turn away from God's word at our peril. And the danger for many of us comes as we begin to listen to voices outside the word of God for advice on certain things. Who do we look to for advice on parenting? How do we conduct our business? If the word of God isn't first, then we have issues. It applies to all of our lives. What ideas are we buying into? Whose analysis of the news do we trust? Who do we follow on social media? What advice about happiness or well-being or self-care or fulfillment do we listen to the most? 
who or what forms your political outlook or your views on contentious issues. It's about what comes first, really. There's nothing wrong with some of those things, with wanting to be happy. There's nothing wrong with practicing some self-care. There's nothing wrong with having a political opinion. There's nothing wrong with having a, a hobby or something like that that we're really into. But when those things take first place, when something more comfortable or more urgent or more up in our face than the Word of God comes first in our lives, or when the Bible simply sits alongside them as, as one of the things that we look to, or worse than that, if we start to view the Bible as part of those other things, as a weapon to use in our political agenda or one of the tools that we use in our self-care, then we're on dangerous ground. The people of Israel find that out the hard way through this drought. We may well find out the hard way too as we drift in our faith. God demands that he be God in our lives. Jesus said no one can serve two masters and he was right. Ultimately, one thing in our lives always wins out, and if it's not God and his word, then we have issues. I think one of the biggest areas where I see this today, even sadly among some Christians and in some parts of the church, are in social issues. I don't want to dive into these tonight, but it, you know the issues I'm talking about, issues like sexuality and same-sex relationships, gender, to name a few. I realize that they're sensitive, and as I say, I'm not going to talk too much about them tonight because they're not in our passage, but God's Word teaches very clearly on them. But sadly, some people want to listen to what the world says about them, about how the world defines them, what the world says the Bible says than what the Bible actually says. And so you end up with people who profess to be Christians, but who aren't guided in these issues by the Word of God, and that's a problem. They're happy for Jesus to be their savior and their friend, yeah, the one who loves them. But they're not actually allowing, them, allowing him to be their Lord and their master and their king. They listen to other voices over the word of God. To give an example of this, a tangible one, in 2017, the Church of Scotland went down this road. In one of their reports, they said, and I'm quoting here, God does indeed speak to us through scripture, but... There are times when God speaks to us through the cries of people who long for inclusion. Now, as a church, we have to listen to those who are crying out to us. Of course we do. We welcome everyone in Christ's name. But that doesn't mean that we allow the word of God to be replaced by anything. Essentially, what that quote says is, yes, yeah, sometimes God speaks through the Bible, but sometimes God says completely the opposite thing through people who disagree with the Bible, and sure, that's, that's fine. I'm sure you don't need me to spell out the problem with that. Now, I'm not saying that I'm perfect or that the Presbyterian Church in Ireland is perfect or anything like that. I'm merely trying to point out that when the Bible isn't number one, there are issues. Today, the Church of Scotland ordains people as ministers whom the Word of God explicitly says should not be ordained as ministers or elders, and people in the Church of Scotland would admit that openly. I could name examples of other churches who've done things like this, but ultimately what it leads to is a place where anything goes. That's what happened in Israel. That's where we find ourselves at the start of chapter 17. We should be warned as individuals and as a church about the dangers of relegating the word of God to just one of the things that we listen to. I think the lie of the snake in the Garden of Eden still tests us. We sometimes think that if we obey God, then we can't be happy. 1 Kings 17 is a stark warning, and I don't apologize for that tonight. 
if we reject the word of God, we should be warned. But it's not just a warning for the sake of it. God wants to guide us with his words because it's what's best for us, as we saw this morning, because holiness is actually something which is beautiful. God does not want us to have other gods because he loves us. Here's what he says in Exodus 20 as he gives the Ten Commandments. The word of the Lord says, you shall have no other gods before me, and he goes on to say that you'll not make for yourself an idol, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Sometimes we don't understand that last little phrase that God is a jealous God, but in this bears saying, sometimes we confuse jealousy and envy. If my next door neighbor has a car, which is nicer than mine, which he does, um, if he has more money than me, which he might well do, um, and if his house just looks a bit nicer than mine, then I might be envious of him. Now that's envy. It's not jealousy, at least not biblically speaking. In the Bible, jealousy is something else. Jealousy is a good thing. It's something that God is. To give you an earthly example, jealousy is if I see my wife spending a lot of time with another man, I get jealous. It's not envy, it's jealousy. Because she's my wife, not his. Now, she's not a piece of property or anything like that, but I want her to spend her time with me, not him. I'm worried about what might happen to her if she spends too much time with him. I love her and I care for her and I don't want to lose her. I'm angry at the situation even, but it's a good anger. It's an anger because I love her, because there's danger for her and I care about her very deeply. Just put in a little disclaimer, that's not what's going on in my marriage at the moment, but, um, but you get the idea, it's a good example. God is a, a jealous God. He wants and demands our exclusive attention and devotion because he loves us. And he cares for us and he doesn't want us to be enticed to go down dangerous paths, paths that will ultimately lead us away from him. It's what happened to the people of Israel. It started with obeying the word of God. It led on to sort of looking into the word of God but being influenced by others with different opinions and it ended up in a complete rejection of God. And God responds in loving, jealous anger on his people and he sends this drought. We need to hear this warning tonight. Maybe tonight some of us need to go away even and in a sense recalibrate that relationship, that thing that I look to for my happiness, that place I get my information, those people I trust, those apps on my phone, those ideas from the world around me that I've bought into. It might be that some of those things aren't bad. Some of them might be. Some of them may not be. But when the word is not central, we risk stirring up God's jealousy. And that is a warning that God's people through all generations need to hear and pay attention to. So 1 Kings 17 tells us that God's word provides. And the first thing it does is it warns us about looking for that provision elsewhere. But the second thing it does is that it encourages us because obedience to the word of God will lead to provision. Look at what happens to Elijah. The word of God comes to him and tells him to go out into the desert. So Elijah does this. He is fed and watered, as we might say. But then the brook dries up, because funny enough, there's a drought. So the word of the Lord comes to him again and sends him off to this widow at Zarephath in Sidon. So he goes there, and again, he's provided for according to the word of the Lord, it says. Then after this widow's son dies, and Elijah prays, and he comes back to life, the widow recognizes that Elijah's words are God's words and that they are the truth and that they have provided for her. 
The word of the Lord provides, and as Elijah provides it, or say he obeys it each step of the way, God provides for him. Obedience to the word of the Lord will lead to provision. Now, hear me tonight. What I'm not saying is go away and read this book a bit more and, and God will give you lots of money. I wish that were the case, but it's not. That's, that's not what I'm saying. I can't say it enough. Elijah was fed by ravens in the desert. That's not very glamorous. What sort of meat did they bring him? It probably doesn't bear thinking about. Chuck it in the frying pan quick and eat it without thinking about it. But God gave him what he needed. And as we serve God, he provides. I know this in my own life. I've known for some time that God was calling me into ministry. I resisted for a long time, but here I am. And I could tell you several stories of times when God miraculously provided. I can think of one time in particular when money was tight, and of course it happened that our dishwasher and our tumble dryer broke in close succession. The next thing I knew, I had a letter through the door telling me that I was getting a few hundred pounds from some random trust that exists within PCI to support ministry students who have children. I wasn't expecting it. I didn't know it was coming. But it appeared just when I needed it, and, and I could tell you other stories like that. It's happened here at Ravenhill. Things have happened in these past few years. You know that. Opportunities and directions in ministry have opened up that we would never have expected. And every time God has opened a door for us to do something, he's provided for it. He's shut doors too, of course he has, but the ones he has opened, he has provided for. Now we recognize, obviously, that there are times when this doesn't happen. Churches close. Ministry organizations fold. Why does that happen? Is it because people are disobedient? Well, in some cases that might be so, but I think more often than not, it's simply God saying to his people, you're still called to serve me, but just not here, not now, not in this way. And as we'll see in a moment, obedience to God's word often leads us to the unexpected and leads us to unexpected places. But maybe you're here tonight and you're thinking, well, that's all fine and well, but I don't work in full-time ministry. If I obey God's word, will I prosper? Well, it might be that where you prosper is somewhere else, in your job or whatever, and, and God in his sovereignty does allow people to prosper in all kinds of ways, even those who don't follow him. But even if you're not called into full-time ministry, God still wants you to be obedient to his word. He wants you to do that first and foremost, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. It's about recognizing priority, the important over the urgent. And I think God calls us to recognize that. Or maybe the Lord is prompting you tonight to, to be the one who gives of their money, to support the work of the Lord, Maybe your part in all of this in obedience to the word is to give sacrificially. It might be to the local church. It might be to somebody who you know in ministry who could use your support at home or overseas. It might be to support a charity who cares for underprivileged people. It might be to sponsor a child. There's an endless list. It might not be an easy financial decision. You might wonder if when you, when you give that money whether you'll have enough left for yourself. But hear this. If you give in obedience to the word of God, then he will provide for you. I don't promise that that means lots of money for you. It might not. As I say, I cannot say enough that Elijah was fed in the desert by ravens. It wasn't luxury. But God provided, and he will provide as we obey his word. So in, in 1 Kings 17, the, the word of God is central. We're warned walking away from it is dangerous. We're encouraged. Obeying the word of God gives provision. 
But thirdly, obeying the Word of God will take us to surprising places and will bring the unexpected. Elijah ends up somewhere he, he never would have expected, surely. After he announces the drought, where does God send him? East of the Jordan to the Cherith. Now, it might not be immediately obvious to us, but it's the most unlikely place that you would want to go in the event of no rain, because it's essentially the desert. There's no water there anyway, even when there wasn't a drought. There's a little brook there, but after Elijah isn't there very long, obviously there's, there's no rain, so it dries up. But that's where God sends him, and God provides for him there. And Elijah ends up with people he would never have expected either. He ends up with this widow and her son in Zarephath. In those days and at that time, they would have been so unlikely to be able to provide for Elijah. To be a widow or to be fatherless essentially meant that your household didn't have a source of income. And on top of that, Zarephath, again, it mightn't be immediately obvious to you and me today, but it's basically the world center for the worship of Baal. I think that's how we could describe it. Remember King Ahab? Well, his wife Jezebel is actually from Zarephath, and her dad is the king there. It's where Ahab first encountered Baal. It's the source of Israel's downfall. And this widow and her son, they're probably worshippers of Baal. Elijah ends up in places he never would have expected with people he never would have expected, and he ends up seeing the provision of God in a way he never would have expected. The widow's son, eventually he dies. The Hebrew's really clear about that. It says his breath went from him. It, it doesn't leave us the option of saying he just slipped into a coma or whatever. It's written specifically to tell us he was dead. The woman who senses that Elijah's God is something special, she blames Elijah for this calamity because she knows that they don't follow Elijah's God. And Elijah prays, oh Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And it happens. Do you see the woman's reaction? She says, now I know that you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. What must Elijah have been thinking? I'm in the wrong place. I'm with the wrong people. There must be thousands of Israelites. I'm meant to be a prophet to them and they need to hear that they're walking away from the word of the Lord. They need to hear that that's dangerous for them. They need to hear that from me. They need to be shown that the word of the Lord is the truth and the right way. But God has Elijah in an unexpected place with unlikely people, and they see that the word of the Lord is the truth. How do we respond to that as followers of Jesus? Does this Old Testament teaching we've been thinking about tonight really mean much for us? Are these miracles that God did through Elijah so long ago anything for us to go by? Well, as followers of Jesus, we know that we need to follow and obey the word because Jesus said that not the least stroke of a pen would be removed from the word before all things are accomplished. And as followers of Jesus, we know that he has the authority to provide as we obey his word because he produced also his own seemingly endless supply of bread when he fed 5,000 people in a place that was miles away from any normal food supply. We know he can provide anything in this life because he also raised a widow's son in Luke chapter seven. But more than that, we look to him as the bread of life, the one who can give us eternal life because of his own death and resurrection. And so he doesn't just provide for us in life, but he is also our hope of provision in death. 
And as we follow and obey the word, as we follow him, we'll see that we'll be led to unlikely people and places. That's what Jesus is getting at in Luke 4. He quotes Isaiah. He says that the prophet is on him and he is to proclaim good news to the Jews. No, to the poor, for prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. And then he mentions this story about Elijah. There were many widows in Elijah's time, but Elijah was sent to Zarephath. And the people get mad. (laughs) Essentially, they think he's saying that God's salvation will be for Gentiles and they don't like that one single bit. But they miss the point, and we miss it, or we risk missing it too. If all that Luke chapter 4 is about is the fact that salvation is for obedient Gentiles and not disobedient Jews, then, then we've missed what Jesus is saying. Those who obey the Word of God and are equipped by the Spirit of God are led to unlikely places, to unlikely people, and that's where they see God's provision and His salvation. I wonder what your ideal church looks like. Who do you think we need to reach urgently? Lots of young people? Well, I'm sure we do. Lots of young families? Well, yes, they need to see the word of the Lord too. Young adults? Yep. But we all have a picture of church in our mind, and and we have expectations and hopes which are probably based on the, the idol of an ideal church in our hearts. We want to see a church filled with people just like us. But the time and place, and recipient of God's gracious provision often do not conform to our expectations. And we need to be alert to that because his ways are always more important. God's purpose as we obey his word may seem strange. It might be unclear. That was certainly the case for Elijah. But if 1 Kings 17 teaches us anything tonight, it's that God cares for the widows and the fatherless. He cares for those who are struggling, and he cares for those who falsely put their hope in all the wrong places. A feature of all societies across all time in this world is that there are always those who claim to provide that little bit of happiness, that little bit of peace and security, that slightly better life. Often life circumstances will eventually expose the shortcomings of those. The drought exposed Baal's complete inability to send rain and it pointed to the one who could. And as we serve Jesus and recognize that he is the bread of life and in him is all the provision that we need and as we live that out, as we show justice and compassion to all regardless of who they are, we shatter those false hopes And we give people the opportunity to look at us and say, just as this widow in Zarephath did, the word of the Lord in your mouth. That's the truth. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth which it teaches, the provision which it gives. Father, We come before you tonight and we know that we are sinful people. We are tempted to look to places other than your word at all times, in all situations. So Lord, we pray that you would work in us by your spirit to point us to your truth and lead us to the people with whom you would want us to share that truth. For Christ's sake, amen.